You're listening to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast with Michael Webb. Some people focus on selling processes like internet marketing or selling to senior level decision makers. Other people talk about process tools, measurement of data, and systems thinking. But not many people talk about how these things can be brought together to motivate people and create wealth for everyone. That's what we want to talk about in this podcast. My name is Michael Webb, and this is the Sales Process Excellence Podcast. Today, my guest is Michael Derrish. Michael is a very senior uh, salesperson for much of his career. Welcome here, Michael, and uh, please tell our audience about your background. Sure, and I usually go by Mike, but I'll answer to anything other than uh, being late for dinner. So, um, anyway, uh, so I began my first career as a, an IT developer. And over the years, I had additional uh, technical roles in systems administration, networking, network management, and a few other things. Um, I eventually moved into IT sales support for vendors, uh, then did bag-carrying sales roles and sales management uh, in large and startup companies. Along the way, I I had uh, roles as a manager, an instructor, a consultant, uh, and, and a few other things. And uh, that went very well. Uh, in fact, it went well enough that in 2007, I just decided to drop out of the workforce and reinvent myself as a process improvement professional. I earned my Lean Six Sigma black belt and began leading um, improvement projects, primarily in large sales organizations. And the way that I came to that decision, we can talk about as part of the, the next few questions. <laughs> You're, you got this all planned out. So, so that's great. So, I mean, why were you interested in, in pursuing Six Sigma? What, what made you kind of step back and reinvent yourself? So, ironically, I, to me a little bit, um, actually the last, in my last sales job, the process that we used, uh, it was called customer centric selling. Yep. That's, that's maybe irrelevant, but it, to me, it was exactly the reason that I got so much uh, respect for rigor and process and improving a process and could see how that was so much better than what a lot of sales organizations had done. And this was after a couple of decades in other sales roles and sales management and everything else where, you know, we used promotional contests and pricing and anything to get a deal done by the end of the month and all of that, you know, let's depend on personality and intuition instead of analytics. And when I saw how it worked at my last sales job, and I got to the point where I didn't have to work anymore, but it was too early to retire, um, I decided, you know, to, to do something different. And it happens that my brother is a, a master black belt, um, trained in GE and had done this for a long time. And I talked to him about it. And he said, I, you know, you might like to do what I do. And I, you know, didn't know what that was. So we talked about process improvement, Six Sigma and Lean and so on. I said, oh, that sounds really good for me. And um, I dropped out of the workforce, did one-on-one training, found and led my own project and started looking for work. That was in, back in 2007. So the timing wasn't great because about the time I got done with my training, <laughs> the 2008 recession hit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, I was able to go back to a company I worked for for four years, and they were they had migrated from being a pure IT play to doing 
process improvement using IT. So mm. it was a little bit of a match made in heaven that way. Uh, and uh, they were actually using software to see how <clears throat> IT-centric processes operated, specifically how people interacted with their systems. And we could now put the time factor on top of exactly what they did. And in service like insurance companies and banks and so on, time is money. So it was it was a really fortunate situation, for especially for me, but they got a lot out of it as well. Mm, excellent. Okay. So, so our topic is principles. I mean, how did this evolve in your mind that that there were principles that, um, and, and which ones were they? I mean, like what kinds of things did you see happen and projects that you did that, that reinforced um, your idea of, of the most important principles? Sure. So as an IT developer writing an assembler language at the beginning of my career, logic, rigor, attention to details are just critical attributes to have. Uh, and additionally, to successfully develop and troubleshoot in IT, you realize pretty early on that everything's part of the system, and you can't just operate in a vacuum except in very limited instances. Mm -hmm. So from my time at uh, college on, system thinking was just part of my makeup. Um, and I was exposed to a lot of other principles. Uh, once I got into sales, primarily related to human behavior mm -hmm. rather than computer behavior or network behavior, uh, you know, once I moved into uh, sales support, uh, at times I was amazed and other times appalled at, you know, how sales organizations functioned or tried to function instead of being based on, you know, logic and, and principles that were all unified. It was personality and, you know, the, what are we going to do today to improve sales? And can, you know, let's have a contest to see who can sell the most. Well, heck, everybody was getting paid to sell anyway. Why you didn't really have to have a contest to get them to sell? That's how they kept their job and made more money. So, you know, I just saw that as as a really troublesome situation. And it wasn't until my last sales job that I was exposed to something very rigorous like customer-centric selling. Right. Where right. we had the tools, we had the roadmap, we had everything that you would see in a process improvement methodology like Lean or Six Sigma or Theory of Constraints. And it just, not only that, but it just worked. And at that last company, we grew, we just grew faster than large companies selling the same thing, specialists selling the same thing. And this was mm -hmm. a company out of Austin, Texas, that uh, you just had the right people and, and the right background to know that we had to do it a different way. And we brought that methodology in-house. It totally changed the trajectory of the company and within 10 years they sold it for 200 $200 million in cash during the height of the recession they just said you know <laughs> this is the right time and uh, it was just very successful for everybody okay so give us an example of what you think of as principles and how they apply well so principles are essentially based on underlying uh, rules of how the world works, and they could be scientific principles, which, you know, in process improvement, we depend on the scientific method right. to uh, and the facts and, and so on to decide, you know, what are our next steps to get towards our goal. But those same things apply in sales and marketing. They apply in in accounting. Even you know, there there's so much waste and and um, 
defects and so on in almost any process that you haven't really gone to great lengths to improve that it's it's pretty easy early on to apply these principles like you know in lean what does a customer pay for if he knows you're doing it um are you doing it right the first time does whatever your activity uh consists of move the uh process or move the offering from where it is to its end state and if it's not then it's waste then you try to cut it out if you can Mm-hmm. Um, you have you have other issues um, or principles like in uh, Six Sigma where it's more statistical based that if you make a change to a process and you take a few samples and it looks like well you know we got a we got a better average rate uh, of success did you really is that is it statistically significant or is it just that yeah it might have been in those three samples you took of of the process. Two of them were going to fail anyway, and you really haven't changed anything. Um, so there's more rigor there. There's more math there. Um, they both have their places in the world, as do the other improvement methodologies, like theory of constraints, where the principle is you can't speed up a, a process end-to-end unless you address the one or two constraints that keep right. you from moving right. any faster. Right. right. So those are the kinds of principles we're talking okay. about. So so now a lot of people, um, I mean, to an analytical person, those are very attractive and very interesting. And then when you start trying to apply them in real life with other people, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. around you, things can get a little trickier. Um, yes. So, yes. so tell us about, you know, some of your experiences there in, in uh, doing projects and getting other people to think the way that, that you know, encouraging them to improve the way they think. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll go back to my certifying project in uh, Lean Six Sigma when I was reinventing myself. Um, and, of course, I wasn't sponsored by an employer or anything, so I had to find my own project and lead it with, uh, you know, the help of my certifying uh, Master Black Belt. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that I have a, a brother-in-law in St. Louis, and he is one of the partners in an optometric firm. They, you know, see people and take care of their eyes, whether okay. it's fitting them with glasses all the way up to LASIK. So they've got, you know, pretty much across the board uh, capabilities for eye care. But in this case, their problem was in their lab where they um, manufacture their own glasses by grinding lenses and fitting them into uh, frames and, you know, selling them to the, to the patients. Right. And they, they had a high level of defects and they had, they didn't even know what rework meant. Um, and they would, I said, you know, this is what I'm trying to do. You, you have any areas that you'd like to improve? And they said, Oh, do we? And introduced me to the lab where they were, they they said, well, you know, we're not world-class and we'd like to be. And I said, so what do you think world-class is in terms of defect? They said, oh, 10% defects. I you know, fell out of my chair, having just gone through my Six Sigma training where we measure, you know, parts per million rather than percentage. And, um, so anyway, I didn't, I got up, didn't laugh at them, but said, okay, so where are you? Well, like 20%. <laughs> I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, so it looks like a good opportunity here. Um, of course, at the time, everybody had been doing their job and didn't have much uh, faith that uh, an outsider who doesn't know anything about their business could help improve them. 
And so they, some of them didn't even come to class in the beginning. And this was a situation where they had two supervisors and the manager of the lab working the line trying to save labor mm-hmm. uh, and not doing their job running the lab. Well, they had to demonstrate that it was serious. And so they came to class and dragged one or two of the line workers in. And little by little, people started going, hey, you know, these guys have respect for what we do. They're asking a lot of questions. They're not telling us too much before, you know, they they have uh, diagnosed, you know, they diagnosed before they prescribe. And, and um, you know, it was a small team effort that started getting results. And, you know, where are the errors taking place? Where are the defects taking place? What kind of defects are they? And pretty soon they're starting to think, you know what, maybe there's a way to analyze this stuff better and focus on uh, the most important problem uh, area, like Pareto analysis. Mm -hmm. You don't have to say it. We just say, you know, which of these areas have the most problems and, you know, what are the causes? And we sent people to class to maintain machines when, Lenses would fall off of a suction cup inside a machine that was grinding it, mm-hmm. and they had to throw the lens away. Uh, they weren't even doing, you know, preventative maintenance. So little by little, they we started working together. And by the time the first project was done, one, one Six Sigma project, we got rid of 25% of their defects. And this included all the training for them, getting, getting them essentially up to green belt level, mm-hmm. uh, doing, doing the improvements, sending them to school, and and so on, meeting with uh, with management, and we got rid of another thirty or forty percent of rework um, just by cleaning up the place. Essentially, doing five S because they were scratching lenses at the very last step where they would polish them with a towel that had the scraps of other lenses on them. Mm. So they didn't even understand that it costs more to to break a lens, as they call it there. If you if a lens can't be repaired. They take a hammer to it, throw it in the scrap bin, melt it down, you know, and they, oh, you know, we put all that work into it. we got to do all that work over again. If you're going to mess it up, mess it up right at the beginning. You know? so, so, so just real quick, you say you mentioned yeah. a, a term there, uh, 5S. Mm-hmm. So that's a, uh, a Japanese in origin, and it's basically a way of keeping a neat workplace. You you look for sort. keeping the – go ahead. I don't remember what they are. Sort, sweep, stack. Uh, so, yeah, so you've got um, shine, sort. Yeah, there we go. Store, shine, sore, stuff like that. That's, that's good enough. I just, some people in the audience might yeah, not. Yeah. yeah, it's just a way of keeping a neat workplace. And, and the things that you don't use all the time, you, you don't have right on your desktop, and you throw away the things that you never use and that have just accumulated because somebody said a long time ago you should have this tool, things like that. So, it, it, at the end of the day, they were so enthused with how they got uh, the results in one project with outsiders that one of the guys who was a supervisor went and became a black belt. And um, they took the two supervisors and the manager that was working the line. They hired two full-time workers with a quality dividend that we got out without increasing their costs at all. <laughs> so they could go back to managing the lab. And a few months later, they opened up a, a new uh, lab that was, instead of being in the back room of one of their optometric offices, it was a dedicated new facility with two lines doing cellular manufacturing and attracting all kinds of new business. And eventually, they uh, they sold the practice for a whole bunch of money, uh, making my brother-in-law a multimillionaire. And he sent me a nice little gift in the mail. And <laughs> 
cool. And um, yeah, and so it was just so rewarding to see how they went from being skeptics and you couldn't possibly help us in our process to being enthusiastic and getting wild success out of it. So that's when I knew I really did the right thing by reinventing myself. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So, and that's a great little example. I say little because it's in a small company. You could be on the same project from the beginning to the end. You could see the result. And because it was Six Sigma, you probably could actually measure the, well, they call that rolled throughput yield, right? The, yes. The improvement exactly. in uh, performance because Six Sigma is primarily focused on the measurement side of things, being able to get mm -hmm. an evidence and measuring variation and improving uh, or reducing um, the variation. Yes, yes. Exactly. Um, now, the next big question, obviously you had a sales background. Now mm -hmm. you've built, you had chops with um, understanding how IT systems work, understanding how professional B2B sales works in a large uh, corporate environment and Six Sigma chops, you, you knew that that Six Sigma stuff, that process improvement stuff is the, is the, a, a better way uh, to, to run the railroad. Now, what about taking it into the sales department? So I didn't have a tremendous amount of success there, and I attribute that a lot to, you know, just a skepticism of the scientific method in sales and marketing that right. they they basically, you know, we've always done it this way. And, and of course, a lot of the senior people are the ones who are, have the most trouble changing. Um, but, you know, we had some successes when we were selling this process improvement uh, software and systems in that once we got in the door, we could use our, uh, essentially, it was kind of customized without formally having them go through, uh, you know, the methodology of customer-centric selling or one that they would invent themselves just by, you know, being there and working on a project where we had to do a proof of concept. First, we had to convince them that there, there was such a thing as being able to show them a process map of something as complex as a, uh, a Blue Cross claim end-to-end -end mm -hmm. using computers and software and they said, you couldn't possibly do that in the time you're talking about. Maybe not at all, because we've been trying to do it for 10 years. And I got famous for saying, yeah, so if you put five people in a room and you ask them what the process is for uh, adjudicating a claim, you won't get five answers, you'll get 10 answers. So they go, oh, yeah, that's right. We did change this. And it doesn't work that way anymore. And you weren't right. here when we And <laughs> so we said, yes, we can do it. And after we proved it to the to the first Blue Cross, then we had a reference that, yeah, they can do it, and we brought in hardware, software, and people, and in two weeks gave them process maps that they could filter, and they, they couldn't believe it, but it's like, it's true. <laughs> they, they really can do it, and so then we had to sell them on, it's really worth several million dollars to you to do this, and here are the metrics we're going to use, and we're going to use your cost of claims and the reducing of your cost of claims and so on. And then we will be able to show you that doing it this way, which not only the uh, delivery, but the sales process of going through the step-by-step, -step, building the confidence of uh, here's a reference, here's, a, here's how we do it, here's the actual proof with a, a proof of concept project, and then, you know, close on a multi-million dollar deal. Uh, that sales process, we used a lot of those same, you know, fact-based selling, not our personalities, but uh, this is how we do it. 
Um, we're going to use your data. We're going to interview your people. We're going to work with your IT folks um, to make sure that we don't violate any of your rules. We respected everybody along the way, and we had some pretty darn good success. It was more successful in delivery than sales because they just didn't want to change, and they saw a few multi-million dollar deals here and there as wildly more successful than they had been before. Uh, but it's it's really hard to get people to change, especially in sales and marketing, and that's where they can get the most benefit to the company. Mm. Yeah, isn't that ironic? I wonder, yeah, why, is. why do you think that is? I, I'm not certain. I, I, I think a lot of it is because of the personality that and the old boy club of, you know, we've got these guys and they can talk and they can negotiate and they can take their customers out and get them drunk and sign purchase orders or take them to a baseball game and, you know, kind of use their relationship to sell. Mm-hmm. And one, one of the things I found in, in customer-centric selling is the last thing you want is a relationship only to, to depend on selling because people move. Right. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you have to start over. But if you have the right sales process and you've developed the right products and offerings and services based on that customer-centric approach, their journey, not your journey, their goals, not your goals, you end up with products that are much easier to sell. And that's what you use to get in the door. Of course, you want to be friendly and you, you know, and that relationship doesn't hurt, but you can't be dependent on it. So, Uh, so, yeah. So I think, I think you're right. And I think you, you touched on something that the traditional sort of sales mentality, if you want to call it that, um, um, you would go and find people and you're looking for people who wanted to buy. And in some markets, especially 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, um, there was a sort of an excess of demand. I mean, yes, wanted yes. stuff. And if you had a decent product, then, you know, you could sell it. I mean, particularly after World War II, the United States was the only country whose production capacity was left standing Everybody else needed products, so if you could make a reasonable product, all you had to do is tell people about it. I mean, exactly. There's famous stories of of the growth in the um, uh, early 1900s simply by the, the highway system and putting billboards out to let people mm-hmm. know that something was available. Like mm-hmm. demand increased. Well, if you've grown up in that type of environment, you don't necessarily have to be all that analytical about why is somebody buying and somebody else is not. Exactly. It's it's half of sales in those days was just showing up. And it yeah. was before the commercial use of the Internet. When I first started using the Internet, it was illegal to send an email that was promotional. <laughs> okay. I so, didn't know that you know, wow. oh, oh, when the when the Internet first started, you know, this is – you know, back when it was growing pretty fast and people knew about it back in the in the late 80s, early 90s, it could not be used for commercial purposes. So people couldn't, there were no websites. Mm-hmm. The World Wide Web hadn't been invented. So, you know, how do you get the word out? Um, well, you can do promotional material, but at the end of the day, somebody's got to come and talk to yep. a customer. These days, before you ever talk to a customer as a vendor, they've done so much work on the internet, comparing you to your competition and seeing who's got good reviews. And, and you may never get to talk to right. that 
person that's got demand because they've decided that your website's not as good as somebody else's right. or somebody else fits better and they've never talked to you at all. Right. And, and so, well, <laughs> so, so I think one of the things that the, the operational excellence, the process mentality, the lean philosophy, whatever you want to call it, Six Sigma, what it brings is a recognition and you use the word at the very beginning of system thinking that there's things happen for a reason out there in reality, mm-hmm. and we can understand what it is. And in the case of sales and marketing, people, their behavior uh, is governed by what they think. Yeah. And so you have to have an idea of what those other people think, and you follow the why, why, why trail, right? Asking why exactly. five times or ten times to understand what they think and why they're motivated to do things in a certain way. And so I think that there's a population of professional salespeople out there who may have learned how to do that uh, to a large extent and not been trained on process improvement. And, and, um, and so they don't know how to articulate it, right? And they just do yes. it, right? Yep. yep. And I think there's also a bunch of process improvement people uh, see what you think about this, that, that they have been trained in these tools and they kind of go around trying to get people to use these tools, not changing how they think, just say, do, you know, a SIPOC diagram, do, uh, you know, a Pareto chart. Um, and if you don't understand why you're doing it, you're going to resist it, right? So and, and it's a lot of work to learn. Yeah. And so, yeah, yes, you're absolutely right. Some are, some Salespeople are just naturals. They have rapport. They ask questions. They don't tell the customer. They don't assume things. And pretty soon they come to be trusted advisors. Now, the really, really good ones then start analyzing now what works and what doesn't. <laughs> and let's get rid of the things that don't and focus on the ones that do. Right. And they become better and better. And the next thing you know, their customers are telling their friends, you've got to talk to these guys. They can solve problems for you. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're solving their customers' problems and making good money along the way and helping their company become world-class. And it's usually, what, 5%, 10% of the sales force that ends up contributing 70 or 80% of total revenue. Right. But right. they didn't know exactly how they got there because nobody ever put it all together for them and said, you know what you're doing is – Lean. Right. Well, and they, <laughs> so those people who figure it out and they become VPs of sales and they're effective and the owners and presidents of those companies depend on them. Yeah. And then when they retire or leave, they try to replace them and things start breaking apart. Right. Sure. Because that knowledge of the why, 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 uh, why we do things, what are the causes and effects, what works and what doesn't work hasn't been built into the fabric of the business. It's in the yes. minds of the people. Yeah, it's tribal knowledge in a lot of cases. Documentations, you know, it's a pain in the butt. When you learn something, do you go and immediately, you know, write it down and make sure it gets into the archives and built into new processes? And No, it's tribal knowledge, especially in sales and marketing with the monthly, you know, pressure and short-term management goals. Um, and so... These days, as millennials come along and, and the traditional lifelong uh, bond of loyalty between employer and employee has broken down, that tribal knowledge disappears pretty quickly. 
and it leaves a lot of B2B companies um, in a position where they're, they're in trouble. They, they, they haven't yeah. got a good, reliable way um, to shore up the losses and, and, and figure out what's wrong and make changes that actually generate improvement. So I think there's, exactly. there's a bigger need for uh, process improvement now than there was before. And I think there's starting to be, I mean, would you say there's starting to be a better appreciation for needing it in sales and marketing? It's it's hard for me to say because, you know, a lot of the process improvement that I did was IT-centric more than sales-centric. Yeah. And so I, I can't really say, but um, I know that, for example, Six Sigma is fairly controversial in, in the industry, whereas Lean is ascending because you get you know faster results. So there's probably more of the how do we get this done faster, and if somebody can can adapt the message of Lean, for example, or theory of constraints, uh, for example, I know one company that they they do their marketing process improvement based on theory of constraints and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And I attended one of their seminars because I was considering going to work for them. I'm like, this is amazing. It, it really does apply just as well in sales and marketing as anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think there's some appreciation there, but not enough. And the kind of work you do to melt those together and show successes, and, and it's got to be with real-world stories that somebody will say, yep, we did it. It helped. You really ought to think about doing this yourself. That's so. It's so much needed in the market that it, you've got them so much latent demand. You just people just don't even know they need it in some cases. So yeah, I'm I'm hopeful, but uh, I'm just not sure. Yeah. Well, and when you are dealing with those people who have had successful careers, um, even a story. Uh, or an example, a case example. Uh, I mean, that can be interesting, but the way you really make progress with them is by working with them on their own issues, right? Mm-hmm. You've got mm-hmm. to help them uh, state the problem and ask them some questions about the problem so they can sort of realize, oh, wait a second, what I meant was this. Oh, wait, wait a second, I guess what I meant was that. I guess I really didn't know what I meant. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. There's a there's a discipline called um, high impact consulting, where you learn to to find out what they need, not just what they want. And when you convince them of that, it's like, oh, this guy knows more about me than I knew about me before we started this conversation. Mm-hmm. And you become a trusted advisor, and they're open to going to uncomfortable areas, you know, to to discuss their problems, not just their goals. And so, yeah, that's just all part of operational excellence in sales. Get inside your customer's head. If you find out well, what he wants, but if you can find out what he needs and convince him of that, even better. And if well, you don't have it, say, I can't help you, but here's somebody who can, and they'll trust you. Yeah, because yeah, you're, you're actively doing something that's in their interest, right? Exactly. So you build a, exactly. a trusting relationship from that by being a good exactly. person. Now, Absolutely. I think sales is a little uh, trickier because there's this hidden sort of unseen thing going on where um, it, it used to be that the salesperson could do everything necessary. Mm-hmm. Um 
to, to find and win and keep customers. And today, customers are looking in places on the Internet, and salespeople often can't control the website. They can't control the social media. They can't control where their company appears or what the customer finds about them. And so customers are going around salespeople. It makes it much more difficult for salespeople. The whole company needs to behave in a more salesperson-like manner, mm-hmm. and they don't know it. And that can be some pretty, you know, pretty huge changes necessary in a company if you try to do it all at once. Yeah, it's like any of the these other process improvement approaches, you don't try to boil the ocean. If you do, all that will happen is the temperature will go up a hundredth of a degree and, and two years have gone by and everybody goes, well, why are we even doing this? Nothing's happening. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah you've got to go for the early wins. Uh, in a lot of cases, that's where it's uh, the easiest in any case because uh, there's so much waste in processes, yeah. especially sales and marketing processes. Um, and the behavior is it actually, some of the behaviors aren't actually that hard to change. Um, right now, uh, the, the joke was if you have three sales guys from the same company presenting to the same prospect, it'll look like they came from three different companies because they don't right. use the same material that was given to them either because it didn't work for them in the past or they're just, you know, I know better than the marketing right. guys, well, my co- whatever the reason. But uh, they didn't have what is called sales-ready marketing messaging. They didn't have the right material. And so why would I use it? It doesn't work. So I'm going to you know, keep my job. I'm going to invent my own. And at least if, it, if I fail, it's not because I was depending on something that I know didn't work. Uh, so there's, there's a whole lot of those kinds of behaviors um, that help you avoid wasting time as a salesman. That is, by not qualifying properly and just trying to go after every deal, because you, you really can't. You have to spend your time focusing right. on the ones you have a good chance to win, and you have to have measurements of those things. And you have to have experience that says, we've tried all these things, and these are the ones that work. So unless you can come up with a reason why we should do it differently, follow our process. And after you become an expert in our process, then you can tell us what we're missing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what we did in my last role, and it was just amazing. We could take average people who were technical in network management and weren't particularly, you know, um, relationship-type people. They were more nerds in some cases that understood the software and the customer's problems and turn them into star salesmen. Unbelievable that we could do that. Where in a lot of companies in that same space, you could take an experienced guy that had lots of Fortune 500 customers and he'd fail to sell the products. In some cases, because the products weren't developed with the customer in mind, right. but with the subject matter expert in that you know area in mind. And so, yeah, it gives you all the information you need, but you need 60 extra clicks to get there and it's a pain in the butt to use. And <laughs> Yep. When we use customer-centric selling throughout the entire organization, customer support and development and sales and marketing, it, it just really ended up being a, you know, a virtuous circle where we would bring customers in and show, and they would show us how they used our products, and we'd use that to make it easier the next time around, and they would tell their friends, and they would buy it and give us more good ideas, and uh, it, it really works to the benefit of sales and marketing. Even oh, yeah. if even if you use it in accounting, 
<laughs> it's like customers got a problem with a contract. Let's figure out a way that we can both be okay rather than going, sorry, that's our policy, you know? Right. Right. Well, and so you get to this situation where, and I know you had it in that company too, um, you've got to get more alignment among all the different people to be thinking about the problems the same way and solving things, doing the work in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a that can be a difficult task. They fa- interesting. They face it in lean manufacturing or you know lean in engineering or theory of constraints in logistics or whatever. They face the same problem when they're dealing with a sizable organization. They got all these people, and they have to try to get them to do things the way that makes sense for the whole business, not the way that may make sense to some of the people in the different corners of the organization. Yep. And an alternative, one alternative or strategy of doing it is force. Yes, top down. Top yes. down, this is how you have to do it. And that yep. can work for a while, right? Ultimately, however, you know, the market is going to shift, the technology is going to shift, and the company needs to be able to change Mm-hmm. And if people are complying because they're required to, then that can expose some weaknesses, and um, that can be that that can be some uh, difficult things to overcome. So that I, I, I'm sure you've seen that, right? Agreed. Um, however, if it is the right process, the people that are there and that you know are, are executing that operationally excellent process will see that it does work, and they will use force of personality or their own success stories to say, look, you know, this is why you want to do it, not just because the boss says you have to. It's really better for you to do it this way. Mm-hmm. And we, and indeed, they had tried it other ways, and until they went to this uh, CCS, customer-centric selling, they were, I mean, they were struggling to stay alive, and the next thing you know, they were on this, you know, ski slope trajectory, just unbelievable. So um, I think, you know, one of the things you learn in process improvement is to get people to change without formal authority over them. Right, correct. You, you know, radio station, WII, FM, what's in it for me? Yeah. <laughs> what's in it for you is you'll get a raise, you'll get to keep your job, you'll, you know, you'll make more money, you get to go home, watch your kid's soccer game on time, you know, things like that. Um, so it's not, yeah, you're right, strictly force. You don't really need to do it if it's the right process. And if you respect those people and understand, yeah, everybody is resistant to change, especially if they've been doing things for a long, a certain way for a long time. But if they see results from doing it a better way, eventually they may come to be a little more flexible. Yes. And also, the other lesson in there I think um, you're implying is that if you're trying to get people to follow a process, and you think it's the right process, and the people are resisting, there might be a reason for that. You might need to dig a little deeper and figure out a process that the people won't be so resistant to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And I think it helps if you if you have facts to back up. We're doing it this way because here's what happened the old way. Yeah. We tr- We experimented. We knew we needed to do something to get better. We experimented. We tried several different things. This is the one that the experience and the facts showed us was the best so far. Now, 
we would ask that you would try to use this one. Well, you really need to use this one because that's the, that's the rule now. Mm-hmm. But keep your eye out for better ways to do things. And if you can see something that tweaked the old process instead of this one, then we can experiment. You know, we can do a, a plan, do, check, act, cycle, and mm-hmm. see if you're right. But we're going to use facts. We're not just going to use intuition. Intuition is important because it gives you ideas about where to go next mm-hmm. and do things. There's the Moneyball movie, a good friend. You may know him. Um, Peter Sherman uses excerpts from Moneyball to show uh, facts alone and, you know, experiments, not experiments, but experience alone with using these facts is not enough. Sometimes you, you've got to bow to how people think because they know something's going, they know something that the facts don't show. So right. add that intuition in to give you direction on how to make things better, but use the facts to say at the end of the day, this is the process we're going to use or this is the process we're no longer going to use because it's not as good as the new one. So okay. they, they both need to be there. And if you respect the people and say, think about this stuff, we'd love to have your input. I think they'll be a little more compliant and, and they know that if they go to the effort of trying something new, you know, maybe on their own time because they've got to do any experiments along with their full-time job. Um, pretty soon I think they'll get the idea that, you know what, they, it's worth doing. It's worth trying these experiments. It's worth using the best one we've found so far. And I'm not going to dig in my heels just because I did it this way for 10 years. Super. Well, this has been great. Um, any any uh, other observations or, or or comments that uh, that you think the audience ought to know about if they're thinking about process improvement in sales? I think that the most important thing that isn't often taught is that most of process improvement is about people, not tools. Excellent. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Super. So how if, if someone wants to ask you a question or follow up uh, with you, how can they get a hold of you? Um, ask them to come to you, and then you feel free to give them my contact information. Okay. All uh, right. I will be happy to do that. And I want to thank you for your time. I thought those are uh, insightful comments, and I think a lot of people are going to enjoy listening to them. And uh, we'll have to stay in touch and see how things are going with your new career. All righty. That sounds good. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Michael. All right. Take care. The Sales Process Excellence Podcast is sponsored by Sales Performance Consultants. Discover how to improve your B2B sales with systems thinking at salesperformance.com.